from Los Angeles, California. This is the Writer's Strike Chronicles, and I'm Tanya Barnes. Hello, everybody. Today is Tuesday, January 22nd, 2008, day 79 of the Writer's Strike. In today's episode, we speak with writers Phyllis Strong and John Zinman as we wrap up a series of recordings made last week at the picket line at Fox Studios. It's worth noting that these interviews were conducted prior to the announcement of the DGA's tentative agreement with the AMPTP. Having said that, before we begin, I want to share with you a call to action from Susan Olson, who is the moderator and Law and Order Criminal Intent fan liaison at the Live Journal WGA Supporters Community. Okay, here it is. Quite simply, call the AMPTP. She goes on to say, the DGA might have reached a deal with the AMPTP, the DGA members vote on it on January 26, 2008, and the WGA and the AMPTP have started informal conversations again. Now this is a good start. However, until the AMPTP and the WGA start officially talking and negotiating, fans for the WGA and that's FFWGA, man, all these, <laughs> I'm sorry, anachronisms, is asking its members to call the AMPTP office in Encino, California, between the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That's noon and 8 p.m. Eastern Time directly. Remind the AMPTP that it walked out of the negotiations 45 freaking days ago and that the WGA has remained willing and waiting to bargain for this entire time period. Now, we viewers and fans want both sides to return to the table without any funny business. We want them to settle the dispute before it's too late for pilot season and before the Oscars. So, the number to call is 818-382-1706. It will go directly to an answering message, so you don't have to worry about talking to someone or getting nervous. When you call, please state the following. Which show you regularly watch? Your city and state? Your closest NBC affiliate? If you watch on Dish TV or DirecTV, you can say that. Your gender? Whether you are currently working? Your age range? Uh, like 18, 18 to 49, and uh, 25 to 54, 50 plus. What is this? Is this like a, like Nielsen ratings? Why do you need all this information, Susan? This is kind of weird. Anyway, she wants you to go on to say if you are comfortable saying so, your approximate household income per year, um, and uh, like example, household income is 75,000 per year, and that is the most desired audience for advertisers. So if your family or household earns that much money, please say so. If not, that's okay too. And that you want the AMPTP to start negotiating with the WGA immediately. And that you want the AMPTP to bargain in good faith. And as an example, she's got some talking points, which if you go to today's blog posting at strikechronicles.com, you can read the script from there. Okay, so uh, she says thanks in advance for anyone who can help make the call. And the original post was at the Live Journal community of WGA supporters. So, like, that's from Susan Olson, moderator and law and order criminal intent fan liaison. And like I said, just to reiterate, if you want more info, just click on today's blog posting at my website, strikechronicles.com, where I not only cross-posted this information, but have hyperlinked it so you can backtrack to the WGA supporters on a live journal. So that's it. Let's move on with today's episode. We'll begin with Phyllis Strong. 
Here we go. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I can hear. All right. Go. Go. Okay. All right. We're talking today to Phyllis Strong, who is uh, that rare combination of someone who writes for Star Trek and is a woman. Yay. And uh, and she wears that combination most fetchingly. Tell us a little bit about your career, because I understand that from knowing you previously, that uh, you sort of took a little bit of an alternate route to get where you are. So start from the beginning. The beginning, but not back that far. Yes, I was one of those people who always knew she wanted to write and make her way into television or film, but having been raised both on the East Coast and in a family that didn't really understand what this was about, had to kind of make my way in a circuitous route. So I ended up entering the world via the business side. And start my first job here in L.A. was working for Fox, where we're standing in front of. What what did you do? I was in business development. I did financing and mergers and all the kind of stuff for Murdoch and Diller at the time. One of the people who would analyze what they were buying, what they were selling, how to raise money for films. Did you you ever deal with them directly? Yes, I did. You did? Yes, I did. So, well, that's interesting because, you know, I don't talk to a lot of people here who have actually had personal encounters with these characters who are now, uh, you yes. know, being held in a certain view. Uh, that, um, that's I, I, w- I was I was on the other side. I even had dealings with the labor relations side and, and the AMPTP, mm-hmm. and not not absolutely directly, but sort of tangentially to what I might be doing. So, what kind of uh, in retrospect, what kind of insight did that give you into what's happening now? I mean, are, are you are you at all surprised that it's gone down this way, or uh, or no? No, not really. And uh, I guess the insight that I got was to what was important strategically in the long term and the short term, and also that these are conglomerates and to view all the different pieces of their business with different weights. And while right now in my world, TV is and film are really, really important and those kinds of projects and, and content is, overall when you're working at one of these large studios, it's all kinds of different businesses. And one is not necessarily more important than the other until it shows how it's going to contribute to the bottom line and how it's going to add to growth and significant growth in the future. So the fact that we have come head-to-head over what's affectionately called new media is not a surprise. And even though when I was working here at Fox and when I was working on the business side, that wasn't part of the equation, everything from licensing, for example, I did way back when in the early dawn of time uh, was helping the head of as opposed li- to the later dawn of time. Exactly, I was helping one of the head of licensing for or TV licensing for Fox come up with a way of figuring out how they might leverage off of this little unknown property called The Simpsons and what might actually be done with it and what it's contributed now. And in retrospect, you know, outside of its syndication value, is just tremendous. And actually, it created. The TV licensing department of Fox. It did. Okay. Was this prior? Was this when they were just doing bumpers on Tracy Ullman? Uh, no. This was uh, the first season. This was. Yeah. This was barely right after the bumpers. This was like two years after the bumpers. This was when it had aired. Was starting to be a bit of a phenomenon. And but more than that, and a way to look at it, and the way the studio thinks is, they had an inkling 
that there was a larger thing out there, probably, honestly, from the Star Wars experience oh. way back when. Right. So, But it had always been applied to film and not really to TV. And all of a sudden, they began to realize animation, these characters, the fact that there's a sort of a graphic idea with them. But I guess what I'm trying to explain is that when a studio looks at anything they do, they look at it over almost interactively over so many different levels and so many different ways that sometimes when you're pushing on one end, you don't realize that all the other dominoes are falling or threatening to fall. So from the original question, I got to see, I mean, really, the people I worked with were brilliant, are brilliant, mm -hmm. as is Murdoch, and the things that oh, they can see, questions that. Yes, and the things that they see and where they're going can be amazing. On the other hand, it doesn't necessarily always dovetail with certain aspects of the business. Okay. Well, so, wait, I just want to know, how did she get in the guild? I got into the guild, uh, well, very, very quickly, when I was at Fox, one of the things that they did with the the business development with, with the junior execs was offer to rotate them through the company and let them do different things. I went and I was much more interested in production, so I went to work for a, their TV movie startup, which I learned a lot about development, production, you name it. And the experiment failed, and I was laid off in '94. And that meaning that division of Fox did not. Correct. Happened. That it had happened to put out about thirty movies or so, and then it was shut down. Is this like the movie of the week kind of thing? Exactly. Um, it, it was resurrected and is now a bit of Fox TV Studios and things like that. But that's what it was at the time. Failed miserably. Well, failed and uh, laid off. And at that point, I had made my money and you know had made enough money on the business side. And had realized that I was never going to be the person who worked all day because my job was, you know, not not nine to five. And then went home and somehow wrote over the weekends. I didn't have weekends. I didn't have evenings. So I decided to put my money where my mouth was and start writing specs. And I wrote. Uh, had you written before? I had written before, but not written for, with the idea of getting an agent. And uh, I hadn't written samples of TV shows. Which what did you start out writing? Believe it or not, Star Trek. I started out I with. I do the, believe I, that. I started with the Deep Space Nine for two reasons. Remember, I came from a strategy background, and the only outfit that would take submissions from non-represented writers yeah. at the time and would take pitches from non-represented writers was was uh, Star Trek. Yeah, the Star Trek uh, entity. I mean, uh, some people know this, some don't. It's it's very open to the fans. I mean, they seem to really understand that the fans are the lifeblood of this, and a lot of them understand the show better than some of them do. Yeah. And so, you know, yes, you, you know, you start out as a fan and one minute you're a fan and the next minute you're actually working on the show. I don't think so. I don't think any of the writers I worked with on staff on the show were anything less than fans of a particular series or all of them or at a certain time even if they outgrew it. So were you a fan? I was a, I was a fan of the original series. Yay. Yeah. It, from repeats, I was a Kirk, Spock, McCoy. I'm not taking a stand. <laughs> I'm not taking a stand about Star Trek and Star Wars either. I'm just yeah. asking. I will take the stand and say that there are a lot of people, a lot of people I worked with who love Next Generation as a representative of their kind yeah. of show. I, and perhaps it's being a woman, and I say this without, you know, without wanting to qualify it, I liked the emotional uh, kind of stories that were told in the original, and I liked the, the 
uh, more flawed kind of characters. By the time uh, Gene Rodmer he reached his position at Next Generation, it was very much uh, humans had solved all their problems, and it was all, all the conflict came from the outside from the aliens. So the aliens were kind of interesting, but the crews of the ships were, in my opinion, a, you know, a bit flat. And you know, Data was one of the best characters for me on uh, on Next Generation because he. If I was a woman, I would be a Spiner femme. But yeah. That's- <laughs> I'm simply talking about how, about my ability to connect to them. So anyway, everybody was a fan to some degree, and and yes, that's how we got in. And the other thing I learned once I was on the show was that while you can have a good handle on your general mission and where you're going and what you're trying to do, these individual stories and twists and moral dilemmas and whatever you're talking about, after a while, you really started to feel a little stale, hit walls, and if you didn't have people coming in to pitch some of these concepts, uh-huh. you weren't going to have as good a show as you could have. So it keeps it fresh. It kept I guess that word mission probably carries more weight in your little writer's room than it did in others, you know, I mean, because... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, whether well, it was a void, but all of them had some kind of mission, some kind of organizing principle yes. of what they were going for, whether it was to explore new worlds, or it was to get home, or it was to explore new worlds for the first time. And the mission actually for Enterprise changed over a while because it got a little more into the larger alien conflict with almost, well, not only Klingons, but the Zindi and and that sense of almost a war scenario or an attack scenario. Conflict. Yeah. Now, you, as you, I think you mentioned this before, but you were in attendance at the Star Trek Day over at Paramount. How did that compare to other days on the line here? I mean... Uh, Anything to report? Yeah, it was so crazily uh, populated that for the only time since I've been on the strike line, I was unable to actually walk anywhere because we were all just sort of packed in. And uh, the other thing was that it was a nice reunion, uh, not only of writers who you hadn't seen for a while, because again, the show's been off the air for a couple of years, and people who had been on previous things that hadn't been around, and some of the actors who showed up. Actually, uh, we, we've asked this to a few different people about how, on their days out on the line, they meet, writer, they, they meet certain kinds of writers that they wouldn't necessarily encounter in their day-to-day life. And I guess the same could be said at Star Trek, that you meet, you know, you meet writers from a particular period or show, and and now there you are all coming together. What was what was that like? I mean, did you find that you had more between you than less? or? Uh? I think we had... It, it is a certain bond. And I guess it ranges from the people with massive love relationships with their time at the, on, on Star Trek and, their, and what they did to the love-hate relationships huh. with what they did and how they did. But despite that fact, everyone is grateful for a certain aspect of what they did and, and uh, what they learned and what they contributed. Mm-hmm. But So it's almost as though, you know, in family, you don't choose the members. It's a little bit like that with the whole Star no, Trek universe. <laughs> so there is something that binds you no matter how disparate you might be or how it's unlike force. It was. There we go. Wait, no, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> It's actually no it's, crossing it's, over. No, it, it's actually probably called the effect of the great bird of the galaxy. 
Um, so, you know, I, I saw people who, even people I hadn't worked with because they were, I made mean, a pitch to them at Deep Space Nine, but I did not work on Deep Space Nine. So, uh, but there's an automatic kind of connection when you see each other. And it was it was really nice. You know, I saw Narayne, I saw a bunch of people. And of course, people connected with Star Trek in any way tend to be very passionate people. And thinkers. Uh, so, yes. Yes. So, so I imagine you find that on that day in particular, people were even more passionate about this endeavor than they usually are. I think they were, and I think they were, you know, it was connected with again, the writer's strike and the struggle for a contract and the struggle, I guess, to be both recognized for the creative contributions that writers and actors as well, who are also part of this and will, whose contract will be up, a sense of, this is what we've wrought. Uh, and, and because of that, the passions were, they were very supportive, which was great. And, and a real, it's almost as though and the Star Trek fans are very outspoken. They're very opinionated. They everything they do, they do out of love for the series. But it sometimes leads to conflict, obviously. But a sense of no matter what what you thought, certain writers or groups of writers, where they took the series or not, you applauded their right to do so. And I think that that's kind of what came out. Yes. Okay, that Star Trek picketing event was over a month ago. What? How are things evolved since you've been on the line? It has gotten, you know, there's a life cycle to this, and we're probably in the middle of it rather than necessarily at the end. But the beginning is always, it's a little surreal and full of not only hope, but a sense of real power and and empowerment. And there's a sense of fun in it that can't quite last. Like, it's, it's like a romance, you know, and you're first getting into it, and it's idealized and everything is wonderful and you don't think of the downsides and there really aren't that many downsides yet because you haven't been out of work for more than two weeks and and all that kind of thing and now it's settling in as much more real and more difficult and not only in terms of the uh, the morale on the line is really really strong and one of the reasons it's strong is that I believe personally that one of the main reasons that we pick it is to create a, a bond of solidarity among all of us, not only to meet you know writers you wouldn't normally meet, actually to meet anybody. I mean, most of us, even in the first couple of weeks, we're going, wait a second, we're so used to being in front of our computers in an office or in our home offices. What is this, like, talking to other people? Socializing. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I swear, I wouldn't have been surprised if two people walking next to each other had just taken out their phones and started texting because they just didn't know what it was like to actually use their vocal cords. I think I saw a couple of people actually start to melt because they just, uh, you know, yeah. they were so thrown by it. So, so Okay. <laughs> Whose turn is it? Um, had you answered that question now? Okay. Uh, no, I, I haven't. I, it, it was how has it evolved? So I'd say the morale is really strong and for that reason, but it's, you know, people are getting hurt. There are a lot, there's a lot of anger in, in different areas. There are people who don't understand that we're actually being locked out at the moment. This is not a strike, it's a lockout, which is basically when employers shut the doors and say, don't come in. And that's exactly what Say a bit more about that. I mean, Uh, tell tell us the This is from my business background. Yeah. Um, But almost from day one, a strike is called... a, A strike is really a strike when management wants to negotiate, wants to strike a deal, and labor goes out and says no we're not talking to you or yes or we're or we're in the midst of talking to you but you haven't come up with what we want yet one or the other 
And that's what started until the first, sometime during the first week when the MPTP walked out. And that is basically a lockout, which they said, we're not, we're basically not talking to you. They may give reasons like until you take seven of your eight proposals off the table, we won't talk to you. But, but they're not making any offers that well. No, no. For I, the new it, ad, and, and, and also, they're not saying if you take the, All they do is say, if you take them off, we'll come back. But they were like, mm-hmm. why would we want you back? So that is essentially a lockout. And all this time that they... Then we got together for a bit, which was the negotiation. We were on strike again. Mm-hmm. And when they walked out on December 7th, I believe it was... Uh, That's an interesting day for that to happen. Isn't that it? is an interesting day. I, th- I, I may be quoting the day wrong, but if I remember right, it was December 7th. They walk out, and we're in a lockout again. And they basically turned, locked us out, and said, we, we don't like talking to you. We don't want you. We're going to go talk to the people you know, we think we can talk to. Well, so let me take your emotional pulse. How, how does this affect your resolve? Uh, it strengthens it. It strengthens it because... Because when there's, it's almost nothing to lose. I mean, right now, there's no deal. And right now, I, the other reason it strengthens my resolve is that a lockout shows a certain amount of disdain for the people you're locking out. It doesn't act as two people who are nego- as equals who are negotiating to do something, to have a contract moving forward. It's almost as though if you were hired to do a job and they gave you terms and then they said, that's it. It's sort of take it or leave it, you know. And, and the implication is we can get 100,000 other people to take this job if you don't. And that's con- I think that's the kind of attitude that we sometimes feel we get from mm-hmm. the studios or the producers, which is you guys push widgets around, anybody could do your job. So those are the kinds of things. I would say if they were back, if they were back at the table and making progress and it wasn't necessarily all that we wanted it to be, I think the... Our resolve would be there, but the resolve would be much greater to come to an end. And I think there are people around who would... No, everyone around wants it to come to an end. It's just at what price. And it's important now because, for example, uh, as I mentioned to people yesterday, Macworld was uh, yesterday... Underwhelming. uh, True, but uh, very significant for us in that Steve Jobs announces an iRentals type of deal where they're going to put movies out to be you know, on a lower price for people to rent them. Well, say goodbye over time to the DVD market, which is basically a rental. I mean, it's both sell-through and rental, but yeah. it's a big part of the market. And if people are going to be purchasing them on iTunes as they already have, and you fill in the rental piece of it, you are essentially taking away DVDs and putting it online. Guess who gets no money when it goes online? Guess you get some ridiculously low, but still some money from DVD. If that is the future, then it's here. But you could also become an iTunes affiliate. If you have a website, you can put an iTunes thing. If you worked on Star Trek, oh. put your episodes on, put the button on your website, say, buy it through me. Uh, uh, I could, but I don't own it. I can't. I can't sell my episode. It's not my episode. Mm-hmm. One... When I agreed to write it for the studio, the studio purchased the copyright for me in exchange for paying me and for agreeing to give me residuals on distribution. I have no right to sell it on iTunes. If I did, if it came back to me and I could do that, we wouldn't be having the same kind of conversation or negotiation. And to tell you the truth, 
that kind of individual sales all over the place, the economies of scale you can get with marketing and whatever, no one would know I had it to sell it. I'm sorry. I would want to be licensing it to Paramount to sell it. And in fact, if they want to give me the copyright back and let me license it to them and call my residuals a license fee, I'd be happy to. We're so caught up in semantics that I think one of, again, you asked me about what advantages I had that I could see. A lot of these terms are fungible. It's just money and how you talk about it. A residual is is a form of a payment for copyright. I owned it. I gave it up to you. I got something in return. And I don't, it, it's not money for nothing. And it, it's dangerous to think that certain, certain, Distribution technologies, as they change, become things that we don't get a piece of. And we have we have only struck. We struck way back then. SAG struck in 1960, basically because this new thing called television was, you know, taking all their money away. And then in '88 or in '80, whatever, the, you can trace any of them to a technological change. Actually, okay, so wait, I don't want to ask her. I want to ask her about this. Um, what about creating content, working around the around the studios, creating content for the internet, and owning it, the copyright yourself? Have you considered uh, that? I think that's great, and I think to some extent, if we wanted to turn the guild or union into some kind of producing entity, I suppose that might make sense, or even smaller ones. But again, it's. Yes, you can put it out there, but you're still, how do you get people to know about it? And if you're going to form a production company, even with a bunch of people, you are de facto basically giving the guild jurisdiction because you will be p- treating your writers like, the guild, like a guild studio would treat them. So again, semantics. Yes, what it's saying to me is I can now own a studio, which is nice. And if I had enough money, I could own a, I, I could start my own UA. It doesn't matter. It's easier because the distribution costs are low, mm-hmm. but there are other barriers, and there are also there's so much unknown that you still need a certain amount of capital to sort of figure out what you're doing. And by the way, we're also not sure what exactly works. So it's fine if you start putting together you know your low cost short film to go on there, and we can kind of see what happens. But everyone pretty much acknowledges it's going to take a take a while for the big hits and the big money to follow the big hits. Uh, I think we sense. now have enough of a history of things that people thought were just Mickey Mouse and flying by night becoming indispensable to life on Earth that we now know that, you know, anything else could fall in that category. And, so I think everybody I, is, you know, anticipating that. And I would challenge you to, if you could find this, to, to there are sometimes these books about all the great predictions of you know 1937 or 1957 or 1999 and line them up with what actually happened and it's not only that we can't live without things we never imagined but we were so dead off I mean at this point I was supposed to be flying around in my space car it's probably why I like Star Trek so much um, but the, if you I think more of Jetsons than Star Trek with that but yeah, that's another my jet pack. yeah exactly my jetpack you know I should have been I actually have been waiting for, you know, since original series reruns for the transporter to be a reality. Yeah, right. yeah. And unfortunately, not yet. All right, let's talk about the future. What is the future of new media in the business? If I knew and if I told you it would be worth many billions of dollars, <laughs> and ask Sergey Brin about that. <laughs> I think the future is a much it's a combo. It's it's going to be a much broader, much easier for things to get on, and it's going to be 
it's kind of like satellite radio or radio at this point. You open up uh, easy distribution and access to a to a conduit, and you either you get a situation where the content needs to be mark needs to be noticed. So half the time you're you're using old media to kind of get new media going, and the other is that there's going to be a certain a big shakeout. I would like to think quality driven. But you, you mentioned Sergey Brin. Do you think Google's going to replace the studios? Not in its current form, because actually, big no. What what Google is going to replace ultimately, I believe, is uh, NBC, HBO. Um, actually, no, it's Comcast. It, it, any of Time Warner. It's going to it. It's it is. It's a pipe okay. leading into your system, and it's it, it, and it. It has certain content that goes across, but it it's a network. It, it, That's what I mean. Yeah. It, they may replace the network aspect, but from what I understand at the moment, they're really not interested in buying the kind of content or paying for the kind of content that today's broadcast cable, made-for-DVD networks, if you will, are interested in buying. Eventually, yes, but I think that they will remain a distribution system. If they try to capture their own content, it's been done. We're, we're standing in front of one of many that have done it. Mm-hmm. But that vertical integration thing is is somewhat overstated. In other words, I've been through. I used to say at Fox that you know when I was there that. Whenever we were doing well, I'd be looking for companies to buy. And whenever we were doing badly, I'd be looking for ways to raise money. You know, it just comes up and down and up and down. And at this point, um, it's going to be, if it makes sense, because you can't get content from elsewhere to bundle it up in the Google universe, great. But right now, you've got a million people who want to supply it mm-hmm. for practically no money. And who are doing it. And who are doing it. Why would you ever want to take on the overhead of taking them in-house? You know, ultimately, it's because uh, Seth MacFarlane, who I think is incredibly well-suited as somebody who snatched him up, knows, to... Uh, is that your fault? <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to the internet, uh, as well as everything else. But... He is the kind of person who could be uh, attractively bought, uh, contracted for by a Google, you know, as some kind of signature to get them in. So uh, that's where I think it's going. I, well, if anybody and, and knows that there's other ways to go, it's him. Yes. You know. I would say so. And I also say that you, since this is being recorded for a podcast, in about five, seven years, you can get this out and you can laugh. Yes. Over what we yes, said. Yes, sure. yes. That's right. And I think maybe five said. or six months, possibly. Very true. Yes, wrap it up. Last thing I want to ask you, I actually want to get back to something we were talking about before. It's about your journey from studio to the writer end of it. All the time you were wanting to be a writer, right? Mm-hmm. And so... You know, did you sort of develop in yourself a friendly alliance between the two, uh, the two worlds, you, or did, or did the? Is she an empath? <laughs> uh, or always? Or oh, okay. No, uh, did I? Did I? I'm sorry. Please finish your question. No, no, I'm, I'm saying, did that sort? Of, I mean, your experience in that camp. 
does that sort of fuel your feelings about what you're doing now or or do you kind of see both sides a little more than a lot of people would I think I see both sides but it's the creative imperative that really fuels you know my morale and my resolve and it originally when I was carrying both through for example it helped that I had met a lot of agents or negotiated with them and I could kind of understand how things worked but there was enough that was completely different about getting into the TV and staffing world and freelancing and trying to get jobs and the, you know, uh, all the things about going up for jobs and not getting them and being, you know, uh, all the ups and all the downs, which are really a part of what this business on the writing side is about. And I think it gives me a worldview, but it doesn't necessarily wholly inform my writing because right. there's so much more to that right. than this one aspect of my life. It just happens to be coming really candy right now. Is there anything, uh, before we go, we've asked a bunch of people this, is there anything that you think people on the outside don't quite understand about this or have any misconceptions about that you'd like to clear up? I think that, and this is hard, I think that the misconception is that the the reason, not only the reason, but the overall impact on on all the rest, all the people who have lost jobs and all of the collateral losses, I won't even say damage at this point, people angrily blame us and think that if we go back to work, somehow all of this will be over. And trust me, if we really believed that everything would be okay if we went back to work and not some kind of short-term band-aid and fix that would just blow up again, everyone feels for everybody out of work, including ourselves. But uh, to some extent, we we are all in this big change right now. And even if a crew is working right now on television, on a show, are those shows going to keep going if we continue it the same way? No. So it's, it, it's really, it's a very tough industry-wide change going on right now. It's affecting all of us. And... I think it's it's really dangerous and really hard to start blaming different different pieces of sort of this different cogs in the big wheel. Um, that's that's what I think, and it's not just that. Yes, blame the studios because they're not you know they're not negotiating right now. But this kind of turmoil, unfortunately, is bound to happen because we're at that point uh, of costs, of structure, of change, and. I hate to say it, but we're all at a point where we can get hurt, and we just have to do the best we can to keep going. Final question. What is a more significant invention, the Internet or the printing press? At this point, I'd have to say the printing press still, only because the Internet's 12 years old, and I don't know where it's going. But the printing press made so much of our past history possible that we wouldn't even be close to the cultures that we are without it. But I think the internet is the most significant change since the Industrial Revolution. Thank you very much. There's a reason that Phyllis Strong's name is Phyllis Strong. (laughs) There's no reason that James Taylor's name is James Taylor, but there's a (laughs) good reason that your name is Phyllis Strong. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Phyllis Strong at the picket line last week in front of Fox Studios. Coming up is John Zinman, 
whom Bill and I interviewed on the same day. Now, just one word, and that is that this recording was done near the fountain of running water at the gate in front of the studios. So my apologies at the quality of the recording. Okay, let's roll sound. So I'm at the picket lines here with... Hi, I'm John Zinman, and I'm a consulting producer on Friday Night Lights. How long have you uh, been in the Guild and what got you in? Tell us a bit about your career trajectory. Let's see. I don't know how long I've been in the Guild. Approximately. Uh, is this your first strike? This is my first strike. I, I think uh, it was probably about 1994 okay. that I joined the Guild. Okay. Um, I sold the spec feature and uh, got in the Guild. Okay. And I've been writing on and off, you know, good years, bad years ever since. Okay. That's well, interesting because a lot of the people that we've talked to here are either television or features, and so you started out in features and now you're in television. I started in features exclusively, and I had some success in the feature world that offered me the opportunity to try television, and I did. I was very lucky to have a show put on the air my first time out. It was called Veritas on ABC that no one has seen, but I loved it. And my partner, I work with a partner named Patrick Massett, and we love the experience, and we really haven't looked back. We've been in TV since that. I like the title. What was it about? It was a mythologically-based show that sort of looks at world history from a, a what-if, the way we've understood history is completely wrong. And the entry point was a father and son who were looking into the mystery of the disappearance of the kid's mother, who was an archaeologist who discovered this truth. Thus the title Veritas. Wow. It was a cool show. It was yeah, a lot of fun. But it didn't make it. But we really learned so much doing it about TV. Okay, so it just goes to show how things change over the years because you started out in features and you said that gave you the opportunity to move into television where there was a time when that would have been considered the opposite career trajectory. And that, and that just shows how... You know, nobody knows exactly what direction anything is going to go, and and exactly. that's then that's why we're here, isn't it? I think you know, writing is writing, and certain ideas have a natural home. Sometimes it's naturally a feature, sometimes it's naturally a television show, and being able to do both is, I think, a good thing. My partner and I still write features, but primarily we're in TV, and. What attracted me at the time was the amount of influence the writer has in the entire creative process in television, whereas in features you write your script and then, generally speaking, that's the end of your involvement. And I wanted more than that, so um, we've been in TV and it's a good place for a writer to be. Have you ever thought of writing for the internet? I have. I think especially as the internet and television merge more and more, the distinction will be uh, non-existent. I think that's beginning to happen where shows are being rerun on the internet. You know, the first rerun is not on network television anymore, it's on the internet. And that and, brings us to the issue of wire striking. Brings, and, you know, the announcement by Apple yesterday about movies being available for rent on uh, on iTunes, the, the set-top box, the iMovie, or whatever it's called, Apple ITV, TV. Yeah. Apple TV. Comcast, I believe, has a very similar thing going on. I know that... They're all jockeying for the black box. Yeah. Netflix is doing it as well, and I think it's the future of the delivery system, and that's unfortunately why the issues are so important and why this is lasting as long as it is, because everyone knows that there's a big pile of money out there and everyone wants it 
they, you know, it's, it's tale as old as time, unfortunately. Friday Night Lights is on the internet, correct? It is. And how's it doing, do you know? It does well, I believe. I know that our TiVo numbers are excellent. I don't have the data on our downloads or streaming. I do know, though, that the TiVo is, our TiVo numbers are some of the best on television. Where do you get your numbers? From people. <laughs> I get it from, I, people on the show get it from the network or from the studio and they disseminate it to the rest of us. I'm just curious, I used to be a research analyst in TV syndication, I used to work with Nielsen. I honestly don't know, I imagine that it is Nielsen who's doing the, uh, the DVR numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a phone number I call on Saturday morning to see what our overnights were. Um, but do you have I, to subscribe to that? No, you just have to, someone just has to give you the phone number. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know it off the top of my hand or off, off the air, I'd give it to you. Okay, cool. So, um, are you at this point in your career a writer exclusively, or do you, I mean... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. My, I'm a writer-producer, and that's my job. Okay, so how is this, uh, I mean, we're asking everybody this, how is this affecting your day-to-day life? I mean, is it mostly... I mean, are you able to be creative in any way at all now, or uh, or is it all basically just your energy is going into the strike and getting it over with as soon as possible? It's very difficult to be creative and keep up the picketing schedule. It's right in the middle of the day. It, it breaks up any flow. I have a certain rhythm to how I write, and this does not fit in well with that. It's affecting me in that I wake up in the morning, get the kids off to school, and find myself wondering, hmm, what am I going to do with the several hours I'm not picketing? And I have, I've been trying to write and keep get ideas going and keep myself creatively active, but it is, it is difficult. I haven't written on spec in a long time, so it's, I'm finding myself needing to fool myself into motivation. And how are you able to keep this going without violating the pencils down? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not writing for any company. I'm not writing for hire. I'm writing strictly for just myself. Ideas. Um, just, uh, just ideas. I'm not, I wouldn't write for any, uh, I just wouldn't think of it. It's, it's not worth it. I think the issues are too important and I, you know, I've got to look at these people I work when we're eventually all going back to work and I need to be able to look at these people. They're my colleagues and uh, there are people, I'm fortunate, I'm a working writer. Not now, but I am usually and if, if people who can afford to stick with the strike don't, then people who can't afford it won't and will fall apart. So, um, you know, I feel an obligation to well, it's not even an obligation. There's not even a question. There's no way, and there's no one I know who would even think of breaking the strike or writing on the sly. Or It's just not even a question for anyone I know. Have you made any sacrifices since the strike started? I didn't go away over Christmas. I'm mindful of the fact that the strike could last a long time, and I've got my kids' tuition to pay. and. So there's been a change in my lifestyle in that regard, just thinking, okay, well, here's the amount of money I've got in the bank, and what was for a rainy day, well, guess what? It's raining. and uh, So, yeah, there have been sacrifices in that way. I think if the strike lasts longer, if it goes into, God forbid, you know, if it dovetails with an actor strike, then you're going to see a lot of pain and suffering on all, uh, in the whole town, not just writers, not just actors, but it would be bad. From what you can uh, assess, do you feel like it's going forward or do you feel like it's stuck more than ever? There was so much speculation in the beginning of the strike about what was happening, what wasn't happening. 
that all turned out to be yeah. untrue that I've stopped speculating. I think that the Directors Guild uh, negotiations are the most important issue going on right now because it's the only thing that's happening. And we'll see. I don't think it's a cure-all. I hope they can make a good deal because I think everyone's hoping that it can be resolved. Unfortunately, I think they have a very different set of priorities than writers and actors just because of the makeup of their membership. And I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic that they'll come up with something that's acceptable, but I don't want to get it lulled into a false sense of euphoria like I have before. I don't know that we are a stone's throw away. I hope we are, but I, I don't know. And to answer your question more directly, I don't think anyone knows. I just don't think anyone has any... If, if there's inside information to be had, I'm not the person who has it. And I've talked to my agencies, I've talked to my lawyers, and no one knows anything. Everyone's guessing. Hey, I noticed you're on the picket line with your son. How many children do you have? I have two kids. What do you tell your kids about the strike? I tell them that I'm not working because the Writers Guild is going on strike to get what we believe is fair compensation for the work that we do. And I've explained it to them very, you know, straightforwardly and honestly, and they get it. You know, if you work, you get paid for it. And it's my belief that the companies are being uh, unfair. And they're taking a position that I think is unwise. And uh, I believe in this cause and I'm fighting for this cause. And we're not going on vacation to visit your cousins this Christmas, and here's why. So it's been an opportunity to really talk about commitment and talk about standing up for a cause and for sacrifice and so you know that that's been a plus side in terms of you know family dynamics it's been an opportunity to educate them a little bit about how the world works sometimes unfortunately how the world works are you getting any feedback about what it's been like for them at school from their classmates my son is very interested in the strike and he talks about it a lot at school and everyone seems to be interested in it at school but I have other industry kids at his school or um yeah. Okay. There are. My kids don't go to a large school, so it's not a huge community, but there are a lot of actors and writers and some producers, and I've gotten into some interesting discussions with the, my producer friends at school who might have a different perspective on how these things are unfolding than I do. And, and so far, civilly. It's all been civil. I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds so straightforward, as it does often when any of the writers are describing it. It's a two-part question. Within the writing community of people that you know, do you know anybody that isn't on the same page about this? I mean, it, se I, it seems like you, there's no way you couldn't be, really. But. I don't, honestly, you know, this is going to sound like the party line, but I don't have any friends who have a position that is other than we need to fight for this, sure. that this is worth going to the mat for. And so, no, I, there's, I haven't sensed dissension among any of my colleagues or friends in the business. Well, and also being a writer-producer for NBC, I imagine that you've had a little bit more exposure to some of the executives than certain other writers might. Um, I mean, has that given you any insight into the other side of this more than some of them would? Or uh... I, I think that the people, you know, I've I've been doing this for a while, and I have friends uh, who are on the network side and the studio side, and you know, this this is above our level. This is happening above my pay grade and above their pay grade. Mm -hmm. 
This is at the corporate level. This is at the multinational level. It's not at the vice president of development level or the president of production level even. In my view, I might be wrong about that, but I've had, I, I, my feeling is they want nothing more than to get back to work just like we want nothing more than to get back to work and do what we all got into this business for, which is to make good material for film and television, whatever the case may be. Or the internet. Or the internet, You're, of course. It is the brave. I better get on board because that or, is the or, future. Or any medium uh, now existing or here and after yes. developed. <laughs> to put it into contractual terms. Yes, exactly. We won't pay you for that either. I mean, um, that's. I mean, if if there's anything that this is really all illustrating is just how fast all the media is evolving and how you know you never know what form this is all going to take as the years go by. Predictions are it's going to go on phones. As a writer, maybe this is uh, just bucking myself up, yeah. but I believe that stories will always be told. They always have been, they always will be. It might not, you know, there was a transition from everyone read serials in the newspaper to then the radio came along and they heard serials on the radio. Those became television programs and then... Podcasts. You know, now podcasts and... Technology will change, but stories will always be with us. And if you can write a story, I think you'll be well employed. Hopefully. <laughs> that's that's what's keeping me going. All right. Well, um, having worked on a show called Veritas and talking about um, how the past affects the uh, present and the future, um, can you set up the question? The famous question? I'm sorry. Oh, oh, yes. The famous question is... Famous to our listeners, anyway. Um, what do you think is a more important invention, the internet or the printing press? I'd have to say the printing press. That's a really tough question because they're, they're so embedded in the context of the time they were invented. The printing press ended tyranny in so many ways. It made information available on a scale never in the history of humankind known. Whereas the internet is more of a... It's more of a leap from that threshold than an invention of the threshold itself. I feel like the printing press set a certain standard of the availability of information. The internet has sped it up, made it more widely available, but it's coming from a... There's a tradition of an informed populace that didn't exist at the time of the printing press. So it's very hard to compare. I think the, I think the internet... Yeah, i got to say the printing press. I've got to say the printing press. You know, you had... Something like ninety percent illiteracy before the printing press. You don't. It, it, that, that would be my answer. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. But um, wouldn't you say corporate greed is a form of tyranny? It is, um, but that's nothing new. Corporate greed was the kingdom before there were corporations, and then it, when there were corporate, you know, we've had the Gilded Age. We've had cycles of of greed and then regulation and greed and regulation. I believe that we are in a certain cycle of unfettered capitalism or greed depending on your perspective and hopefully that'll pull back because it's it's not tenable it's just you can't you can't have the kind of discrepancies in class and income that you do now without something breaking eventually that's my at least that's my feeling about it thank you so much I appreciate your time pleasure talking to you guys
You have been listening to the Rider Strike Chronicle podcast, available for free through iTunes. For more information, visit us at www.strikechronicles.com. To contact us, please call 310-439-8754 or send us an email at info at strikechronicles.com. 